as I say in my book, I quote Hippocrates. But yeah, I like that chap. Anyway, <laughs> he, he was onto something, you know? You know, 2,000 years ago, he had it spot on, and that's my opening quote, and almost a rationale for writing my book. He said, if we could give each individual just the right amount of nutrition, just the right amount of exercise, not too little, not too much, we have, would have found the surest way to health. I mean, wow, that's exactly it. Hello, and welcome back to the Air Great Podcast with your host, Unique Hammond. I created this space to share inspirational stories and tools for better health so that we as informed human beings can make choices that serve us both today, tomorrow, and always, because we are not just the now. We are a continuum from before we were born to the moment we step into the next adventure afterlife to take care of our human body is a profound responsibility in such a beautiful way it is not a burden it is a joy or it is for me anyway when i was sick it wasn't as much fun um, as it is now that i'm healthy but being sick probably gave me a deeper love and profound connection to my healthy body now because before i was just healthy that was life on planet Earth for me. And when I was face to face with my mortality and potentially living in a sick body forever, there wasn't anything I would give to be healthy again. And once I scratched my way back to that homeostasis, one of the most powerful levers is health, our daily routines. How do we nourish ourselves? How do we move our body? Do we need to rest connecting deeply and profoundly with our individual health and allowing the rest of the noise to fall away. How we nourish ourselves is individual and personal. However, we need to nourish ourselves. And there's a lot of people under eating out there and not nourishing themselves and their little body over time just kind of kaputs. So anyway, I had the absolute pleasure and joy of sitting down with Dr. Nicola Kay and she just put out a book called Hormones, Health, and Human Potential, which I devoured. It's a guide to understanding your hormones to optimize your health and performance. A lot of times we think performance and we think athlete, but performance is getting up and feeling great to take care of our family, go to work, show up for our community. Performance is our ability to show up and be at our best. So when I think of it, I don't think of just athlete. I think of my day. Am I performing at my best? And if not, where do I need to shift one of my levers? Do I need more rest? Do I need more nutrient density? Do I need to move and get out in the sunshine? Nikki is an honorary clinical lecturer in the Division of Medical University College London. She lectures and researches in areas of exercise endocrinology with publications in the field. Nikki's clinical endocrine work is mainly with exercisers, dancers, and athletes, with a focus on relative energy deficiency in sports, REDS. Athlete navigation, perimenopause, and menopause. Nikki works to provide a more personalized approach for female health. Nikki authored the British Association of Sports and Exercise Medicine. Nikki is a medical advisor to the Scottish Ballet and keen dancer herself. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. It was incredibly educational. Education is power. It begins to open up our world to what is possible. 
Information is something we sit with and we let it resonate. And we go, is this for me? Is this my medicine? But beyond that, how can I optimize my health and well-being and lifestyle today, right now, this moment? Because this moment that you step into taking care of yourself is the most important. Building that habit of showing up for your best health, your sleep, all of these things that we have at our disposal to begin to prioritize them sets us up for a pretty tremendous experience in this human body. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening. Hello, Dr. K, and thank you so much for coming and joining me on the You're Great podcast. I am so excited to chat with you today. I've been reading your book, and it was a book that I am giving my daughters. I bought them copies, and yeah, I've been making my way through it and just going, wow, I wish I knew this when I was pregnant, and wow, I wish I knew this when I was overtraining and under eating and you know it just was so many aha moments and I work with so many women who are struggling with hormonal imbalances and your book hormone health and, and human potential a guide to understanding your hormones to optimize your health and performance is incredible and I will be recommending it to my entire community so thank you for writing it and thank you so much for being here well thank you for that kind introduction but that's why I wrote the book because, yeah, for me personally, I'm a woman and I'm a doctor. And so me personally experiencing stuff, but also working with people over the last 30 years, it's like, you know, I should just put this all what, what I've learned through my experience working with people and as a doctor, let's put it there, as the book says, as a guide. Let's guide you through your journey because, you know, hormones are complicated, but that's why I love them. That's what drew me to them in the first place. So I'm trying to demystify and help explain what I, you know, have grown to understand and through my experience and put it there, give the information to people so that they can make, you know, hopefully informed choices, like you say, during the different phases of, of their life. I see a lot of women in their 20s with already hormones that are out of balance, right? So maybe you could just walk us through puberty, you know, and on through and how should I be working out when I have my cycle? Should I work out differently to support progesterone? Should I work out differently to support, you know, fertility? And so I obviously am throwing a lot at you, but you can just start wherever you want. <laughs> well, let's start at the woman's hormone health journey. Why are, why are we doing this? Because hormones, as I said, are complicated and beautiful. But out of all the hormone systems in the body, the most complicated and the most beautiful are those of, of the woman, right? The amazing intricate choreography of those hormones fluctuating during the menstrual cycle is a work of art, right? Because it's complex and also individual. That's the other thing. So although, yes, we say every woman should have these menstrual cycles during her reproductive years, and this is how the hormones should go up and down and there, there will be subtleties. And this is where it's really important. There will be subtleties in the levels of the hormones going up and down for the individual, the timing, when exactly the woman might ovulate. It's not, it's not the standard textbook right in the middle of a cycle, by the way. I can tell you that for free. And, <laughs> and also the most important thing of all is how the woman responds to those hormones. Each of us will be slightly different in our biological response to the hormones. So even if you have two women with exactly the same timing of the menstrual cycle, if you can find that, good luck. But anyway, <laughs> and exactly the same level of the hormones, they might describe to you that they feel totally different. 
Okay, so that's why we really have to unpick it and give women the permission to be individuals, please. Please be individuals, not statistics. I was wondering if that reflects in blood work as well. If you all ah, have two hmm. women the same age, roughly testing in the same time, and you'll see different fluctuations, and let's just say healthy, healthy hormonal cycle, not somebody who's out of balance, but somebody who's healthy. Will you see similar numbers on the page? Well, that's why the range, because the range depends where you are in your cycle. So already that makes a massive assumption. Yeah. generally, that you are in the follicular, you are in the mid-luteal. So already we've got a problem. Okay. We're assuming that that's where we've got it right, where you are in your cycle, which is tricky. And the other thing you say, that's why the range is so big, by the way. Look at the range. Mm -hmm. you, if you're in that range, I think probably a different approach is required for hormones. You cannot never look at just one hormone is number one rule because they're all they're like a family interacting. And the other thing is looking, you're looking at for the patterns. It's not the absolute number. It's the pattern. Oh, well, this one, because when I look at it, my sins, I did Latin at school and, you know, really quite complicated trying to work out what the, okay, this word is in this case. This must mean this and really having to unpick it, real detective work. That's what a hormone blood test presents to me, this challenge of looking at the patterns. So absolutely, that's, we should bear that in mind. Blood tests are amazing, by the way, for hormones, you know, that, of course, I would say that, wouldn't I? But it's true. They are the gold standard. But there are also, we have to, number one, take those into the context of the individual, but also ideally match it with other bits of information about that individual. Not least, and most importantly, how do you feel? What are you, what, what are you up to? How, what are you eating? How many times a week are you exercising? All that sort of thing. So. Shall we go back to our little journey? We'll start for a yes. woman. So childhood, you're just sort of growing effectively, a growth spurt. And then for women, of course, the big hormone event, as it were, is when you start your periods. Average age is 12, but it can be anything up to the age of 16. And certainly some of the youngsters I'm working with who are doing a lot of exercise and training, then I'm not going to be too surprised if they say their periods start at 14 or maybe even 15 at a push, but definitely a woman's period should have started by the time of her 16th birthday. Some sources say 15, some say 16. I'm old-fashioned, I was taught 16. But if we come to a compromise and say, on the 16th birthday, if they haven't started, then we need to look in and see if there's something medical going wrong or if there could be an imbalance in the even at that young age. And I see it, sadly, quite a lot. Because, you know, youngsters of today, they're expected to study. They're expected maybe to do lots of exercise and train, sometimes train like an adult, which I don't think is a good idea. You know, there's all the pressure about looking a certain way. So nutrition. So, you know, it, it's, it's easy for these things to get out of kilter. But let's assume, shall we, that hopefully we've negotiated that. And now we have these, this menstrual cycle, the fluctuation of the hormone, this beautiful choreography has now started. Hooray. And this is uh, very important for all aspects of a woman's health. A menstrual cycle, I know the period can be annoying and irritating and all those words, but the period, actually, you should be really happy every time you get a period because that's your pre-monthly medical check right there. It's like, hurrah, that's a nice, no fancy blood test involved. There's a period. It's like, okay, that's giving me a pretty good indication that my hormones are healthy inside. And these hormones are very important for many aspects of physical and mental health. So for women and men, by the way, the queen for bone health, the hormone is estradiol, mm -hmm. the most active form of estrogen. 
So especially in, if you look at the graph of how bone health, bone mineral density increases, you can see there's a massive increase during those adolescent years as the menstrual cycle, as the estradiol levels are, are building up. So it's very important for that physical aspect of your health, but also other physical aspects like cardiovascular health, neurological function, and of course, mood, mental health, all these things. So these are good things, these hormones, right? These female hormones are absolutely excellent. It does concern me a little bit, and I'm not alone in saying this, that, you know, for teenagers, when these hormones should be rejoicing that these hormones are, are happening, you know, everything's happening, really important for health, that sometimes, you know, it seems very easy to put teenagers on hormonal contraception. And the problem with many of these forms of hormonal contraception is that they work as contraception because they dampen this beautiful choreography of hormones. And so everything is just very, very low. And in fact, in the US, there is a yellow card warning on the depot injection of the progesterone type of contraception for bone health in youngsters. Right. And even now there's emerging evidence that even the combined oral contraceptive pill could have an adverse effect on bone health. Makes sense after what I've just said. That is a yeah. key time to improve in bone health. So it has to be really nuanced. I'm not saying we should never give hormonal contraception to adolescents. I'm not saying that, but it should be with careful discussion and making the individual is it's an informed decision, a joint form decision. All the way around too. I am curious, do you see the contraceptive, like taking contraceptive, the pill interfere with the hypothalamus pituitary? That's how the contraception works. It stops you producing all the key hormones for making the menstrual cycle happen at the top level, at the hypothalamus. Hypothalamus, by the way, is the boss of the hormone system. And it has very close connection with the pituitary gland also located in the brain, which is, I think, what rather beautifully called the conductor of the endocrine orchestra. So the pill specifically acts there in the brain at the control center to stop the female hormones and the menstrual cycle. But you make a good point. Does it interfere with other hormones in the hypothalamus? Well, we hope not because the female hormones produced by the ovaries, the estradiol and the progesterone, they're so key for bone health, cardiovascular health, mental health, neurological function, gut health. You see what I mean? Switching those off. Again, for some, I'm a, you know, a doctor and sometimes actually doing switching it off like that, the female hormones actually is a good choice, management choice for a woman who's suffering very badly with endometriosis, suffering badly with PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, really severe premenstrual issues, for example. Sometimes actually, you know what, that's a good call. But I am concerned that maybe still working with women that they didn't realize that, oh, I didn't realize that that's what the pill did to my hormones. And actually they're quite shocked if we do a blood test and we look at the blood test and all the female hormones are low, low, low. You might be asking me now, well, how come? Because these hormonal contraception pills, uh, medications, they've got hormones in. It's true, they do, but they're synthetic. They're not the real thing. And although it pulls the brain to the hypothalamus, don't produce any, we've got enough, thank you very much. These synthetic hormones do not fool the bones, the brain, the gut. So that is also an important thing to say that you might say, oh, well, it's got hormones in, I'm fine. But actually just remember, those are a different version of what you produce yourself. So what you produce yourself 
surprise, surprise, nature, <laughs> millions of years of evolution, you know, it, it knows what it's doing, right? <laughs> yeah, and I know I'm going to take a little diversion for a moment. Of course. So if these young girls are getting on the pill, or even later they're getting on the pill because of endometriosis, PCOS, what is causing at such a young age this is it an overproduction of estradiol that's happening that's causing the endometriosis to grow? What is what is happening? I think at a very I think in those teenage years it's like you know it's like learning to ride a bike almost you know it's not going to be smooth going, right? Some women are lucky. Listen, some women. I started my I reached menarche at twelve. Everything's the textbook. Regular periods. Never had a problem. Fine, great. But for quite a lot of youngsters. Number one, it's a confronting thing. It's like, oh my goodness, now I've got to be thinking about, you know, sanitary wear and, and, and what's this strange discomfort I'm feeling. It's, it's confusing, but also the hormones need a little bit of practice sometimes. And sometimes they can get a little bit out of timing and out of sync. And so there's recently just a paper out saying, please don't do ultrasounds on teenagers because quite a lot of them will show Lots of follicles in the ovaries. In other words, there's a, there's a little bit of a mix up, shall we say, right? The timing isn't quite there, but they don't have PCOS. They don't have polycystic ovary syndrome. It's just that if you do an ultrasound, then it's just not quite in, in, in sync, you see. So that's, I think, why lots of teenagers might experience some, you know, mistiming of the hormones. But, and of course, if, if someone is really in pain and definitely, you know, you're really pretty convinced that they have endometriosis, I'm not saying one should withhold medication. So please don't take it that way. But I think also sometimes actually just explaining to the youngster, look, it is actually your skin is a bit spotty because the hormones are getting going. And, you know, yeah, it can be a little bit of a mistiming. Then actually, if you just explain that and this, you will overcome this and the hormones will get into a nice pattern, then that's actually more reassuring than just being told, I'll just take this medication and forget about it. But you know, the youngsters today, we expect a lot of them. They expect a lot of themselves, yeah. you know, with the pressures of, of academic work, of maybe following a particular thing, they music, a sport, whatever it is, they probably have other interests. Of course, they want to have their social life, fair enough, you know. And so there's a lot of push and pull on them. And stress is really our our reaction to all these things about us. We can't measure stress, can we? It's just a subjective thing. And we say, oh, I feel stress. What you really should be saying, although it's a bit of a mouthful, is that I am noticing that I have a lot of pulls on, on my time and I am feeling under stress, you see? But it's very important because, by the way, how we interpret stress, guess what, in our brain. And guess where the brain is? We've already said, right next to hypothalamus and the pituitary. So the hypothalamus doesn't doesn't make a note of where the stress is coming from. It doesn't have, you know, in the email title, right? This is stress from work. This is stress from this. No, no, no. It's just this person, all these inputs, internal and external, diet included, by the way. Like, why is this person eating really strange biscuits, a whole packet of biscuits at midnight, but they didn't have proper dinner or whatever it is? You know, it, it's, it, it's all seeing, literally. It sees all the things and it comes together and says, well, actually, all of these factors are combining. We just, you know, and it gets, it gets the pituitary gland thinking, well, actually, this is, this is. It interprets, yes, this, the combination of all these things is a stress situation. So we need to up the cortisol. And cortisol is a very important point hormone. If you'll come face to face with the saber toothed tiger back in the day, you needed your cortisol boost to run away. But actually, 
having uh, this response all the time because cortisol will put on hold all the other hormones, as it were, because it needs to prioritize. So that's quite, yes, yeah. <laughs> so that's why I think that teenagers are particularly susceptible, maybe, because they literally have a lot of things going on. And also, in any case, the hormones are, especially with the female hormones, you know, they're just getting into their step and their stride. And so now chuck on top of this a whole load of other factors as well. It's, you know, it's a tough time for the hormones. Give them a break. <laughs> oh, is it pretty common for a young girl to skip cycles when her hormones are coming online and for things, as you said, to be out of sync? Could they go to a 60-day cycle or a 20-day cycle? Could things move around a little bit in the first couple of years? And is that totally healthy or normal? Well, the time limit is difficult. Because I have a, a colleague, Dr. Kate Ackerman in the States, actually, who says, although we, we say all this, yes, teenagers have got a lot going on and we should give them a little bit of leeway, actually, not too much leeway. You know, if we're talking years, then actually maybe there's something else. But for a few months, you know, like three months when it's just like not sure what's going on, or maybe at particular stress times, I see it a lot at exam times, May, June, you know, someone will come and say, Oh, well, I, I didn't have a period then. It's like, Oh, but that was exam time. You see what I mean? So if there's a, a reason for it, that, then that also, that's fine. But I, I would be a little bit concerned if it shouldn't stretch to years. You see what I mean? Like that. Or without a clear reason. You know, everyone's allowed to have a, you know, an off cycle, as it were, from time to time. We know that from COVID, by the way, because even women who were having absolutely entirely regular cycles, we know during the pandemic, that lots of women were reporting irregular cycles. It's a case of looking at the information, looking at what's happening for you, looking at what's happening outside, and then find if you can't identify a reason, like exam time, COVID lockdown, or, or something like that, or you, you know that you haven't been able to exercise, or you know that actually your diet's been a bit off, or you know that you're sleeping patterns, then actually address those things as a starting point and, you know, quite a lot of times that will help give your hormones a helping hand, shall we say. Yeah, I did see a lot of irregular cycles in both of myself and in, I think, the, the female community at large. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Unknown stress where you're just scared. You know, you just Yeah, exactly. Because it was the uncer it's uncertainty. That was, it was a really strange a really strange time and, and stressful for, of course, for everybody, not least the ones that were ill, but but also for the rest of us, you know, well, actually I did have COVID, but anyway, but you know, for, for people, even if you weren't ill yourself, most people would know someone that was ill or your whole life was turned upside down and you couldn't do your normal routine. So that was actually pretty, yeah, that just shows the hormones are sensitive to what's happening on the outside, which they're meant to do, by the way, the hormones are meant to adapt to what you're doing, you know, because it was a stressful situation. So actually your body should be in a, in a sort of a heightened state as it were, you see? So you can't blame the hormones and say, oh, well, what were they doing? It's like they were only trying to do their job. <laughs> they were moving with us. They were. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we, we get our period, things get going. Sometimes mm -hmm. issues show up early. Would you jump on the, would you give it some time and how long time of, of amount of time would you give it before you went, okay, maybe birth control pill is the correct thing because of X, Y, and Z? Like, is there amount of time in a woman's life that you would, you would say, okay, would you look at diet and exercise mm -hmm. and sleep first and say, okay, let's see if we can get your hormones to kind of lock in? Exactly. Absolutely. 
And I would, you know, if the person was coming and, and their periods have been, so I'm thinking now, well, at any age, but sort of moving into the 20s now, you know, they, they come and say, well, actually, you know, of course, if their periods have stopped, that's a big warning sign and they're not pregnant. But if it's like, oh, my periods are irregular, or I'm really, yeah, I've got various problems that might be mood, irregular cycles, whatever it is, then actually I would probably quite early on do a blood test just to make sure there wasn't something really obvious in terms of definitive information about PCOS or something like this. And I would definitely be asking them what their life looked like, you know, in terms of what are you doing, exercise. So absolutely, I would usually what I do, get the blood test done, have a talk with a person, put that into clinical context. We know what's going on in their life. And then you've got a nice picture of, but quite often, the blood test is, is okay, but you're right. Then we pick up something that isn't, isn't in sync in terms of their lifestyle balance. And so we would absolutely, I would give them personal advice how to address that and see how, how, how that shapes up. If, of course, there were an obvious medical condition or if that really, you know, even that doesn't work, then of course, then yes, we can be talking about medication. But I try to leave that, you know, for later on in the process because so many times, you know, women ask or, or anybody, I suppose, it's like, uh, you know, sometimes also it's easy for the doctor and the patient, frankly, <laughs> you know, it's very easy to write a prescription and it's very easy for the person to take that and it's like, oh, that's it, that's fixed, but actually there's something, something else, well, something better and something more satisfying that you can do for yourself and take charge and responsibility for your health. That's actually, you know, that's actually a pretty good feeling to do that. And, and beautiful to know that, that what we do, how we eat, how we live has so much impact on how our body expresses hormones. And you know, if you get a blood test back and your cortisol is through the roof, you can pretty much see a direct link of why your other hormones would be wonky, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 But I also think it's interesting in the States here that I do feel like the pill is the first line of action and young women will go in with skin issues or, you know, a hormone, painful hormone. And it's like, oh, here, here's the pill, get you on the pill. And so many doctors are missing that incredible opportunity to empower yeah. these women and say, hey, yeah. you know what? Your hormones are responding to your life. Yeah, 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 Food, exactly. Sleep. And, and let's look at these things first, because here are the actual ramifications of taking the pill now and what could happen to your bone health, as you're saying, and your cardiovascular health and all of these. And you're, we haven't even talked about the role that they probably play in the gut microbiome. Right? Yep, yep. So it's like here, here, if you're if you're ready to have this conversation, you're also ready to hear how much responsibility you can take. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. I mean, I don't think it's just in the US. I think it's, you know, every, everywhere. Uh, you know, modern medicine is amazing. But actually just going back to those fundamental important points, because then it's especially at that young age, that's the crucial age when you can get understand and get into good behaviors, good habits. And as I say in my book, I quote Hippocrates, who says that the surest, uh, yeah, I like that chap. Anyway, <laughs> he, was, he was onto something, you know, you know, 2000 years ago, he had it spot on. And that's my opening quote and almost a rationale for writing my book. He said, if we could give each individual just the right amount of nutrition, just the right amount of exercise, not too little, not too much, we have, would have found the surest way to health. I mean, wow, that's exactly it. So I think that it's a missed opportunity, especially for the youngsters at any age, but especially 
in those formative years to just have that basic understanding and, you know, and therefore empower them, especially that's the time when they're learning. Their brain is receptive to learning things and making good habits. So it is definitely an amazing opportunity to set that person up on hopefully the surest way to help. Isn't it amazing that he really gave us the roadmap to yep. what health would look like? And and it's interesting because all the studying I've done and all the books I've read, everything always comes back to the same thing, which mm-hmm. is balance, which is, I think, the hardest thing for a human to do is balance. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, it's certainly a challenging thing, which is sometimes why the medication op- option seems easiest because you don't have to, frankly, make too much of an effort. Uh, so I'm not making out this is an easy thing. And of course, you've got to be realistic and try and personalize f- for the individual as much as possible because there's no point in me saying, oh, you've got to, you know, being prescriptive in what you do, right? You've got to do this exercise. You've got to do this. You've got to do that because it's just not going to happen. And I'm the same myself when I go into the physio and she always smiles when I go in because she knows, oh, here we go. I want to know, why are you giving me these exercises? What am I looking for? What are we doing? Because if you understand why, guess what? You're much more likely to do it and and keep going with it rather than, you know what I'm talking about, just doing it for a day and then that's it. So it's got to be realistic for the individual. And that's what I take a lot of time doing really. What? How can we make this practical and enjoyable, by the way. Enjoyable is very, very important. If you enjoy doing something, you know, we don't all like going to the gym. That's me. I don't, I have to admit. I do love my ballet class. So trying to find what is enjoyable as well for that person makes it less of a chore, more likely to do it, more likely actually to get a benefit, a beneficial effect. In my book, I quote a very interesting study they did in Australia a few years back. They had a group of people, they divided them into two. To one group, they gave them, prescribed their exercise, right? You've got to do this, this, and this, whatever it was. I don't know, a circuit class. And so the other group, they said, well, look, here's some equipment. Here's the possibilities. Just go and do some exercise. You choose what you do, Maha, right? And then afterwards, they put on a buffet spread of food. The participants didn't realize this was still part of the study. The ones who have been prescribed to do this exercise, these exercises, they went for the less healthy options, the more processed, the higher calories. But the other ones, because they were felt good about themselves, they were in control, they made actually a very good, better selection of food. So I think that's also very important. We don't want to be too dogmatic in prescribing these lifestyle things, but pointing out that this really is vital for your hormone health and therefore your overall health. And here are the tools. So that's why I call my book, The Guide. It's like, here are the tools. Now you, you, you sort of tweak them for you. Yeah, it's wonderful. And I, I read that study in your book and I thought it's so Yeah, that one's good, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, it's so interesting because there is something to being able to choose how you move your body that brings you yeah. joy because not everybody is going to be an elite athlete. Not everybody needs to train all the time and push themselves. It's really finding that joy in movement and encouraging that joy in movement. And then based on that empowerment, you're like, oh, how do I want to nourish this incredible body that gets to move in this way that brings me so much pleasure versus do this exercise. And it's almost as if when I was reading that study, the people who were prescribed what to do, they 
took out their ability to control in their food. Yeah, oh, exactly. I exactly. Eat now whatever I want because I. Yeah, want. yeah. Now I've done been good. I can just yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Ah, I was just like the psychology is so, is good, isn't it? The psychology study. of this is very important. Yeah. Oh, a beautiful study, which I t- I do think that there's such an opportunity for providers, doctors, dietitians, nutritionists, whatever, to actually enlist the person in what do you enjoy not not just the mouth party because look most people are going to come and say i love sugar how can i eat sugar and be healthy but how how what feels good as nourishment in the in the body and participating in it versus that here's your prescription now go and do it right yeah exactly participation discussion almost like a negotiation i suppose and that's what i had to do often when i was working in diabetic clinics in the nhs here in england and yeah to be honest, I think everywhere, you know, there is an explosion in obesity, unfortunately, and type 2 diabetes. And so in the diabetic clinic, I always, you know, trying my new approach. It's like, oh, what exercise do you like? And the, if the person said n- nothing, which they often did, it was like, okay, but then I would, let's work on it. Right. What can you do? Can't you walk around the block? Let's build on something. Oh, yes, actually, I don't quite like walking. Oh, actually, yeah, swimming wasn't so bad. You know, you have to have the patience also and nurture that person what to find them. You can't immediately say, right, you've got to go out and do whatever, go to the gym and do the running and this, because it's not going to happen. So we have to be, I think it's important. And that's why I enjoyed my job because everyone is individual. So finding out about them and finding out what's going to work for them and what's going to make them, as you say, enjoy and participate and therefore not only empower, but actually you know, really get involved in it. And then, and then that's, that's, that's great. But you have to set someone on that purse path in the first place. You see, that's the tricky bit. And when you get that young girl or yes, boy the in front of you, you have as a, as a physician, you have this incredible opportunity to say, look at this amazing human body that you have, this amazing mm-hmm. symphony that you can't see, but is constantly working on your yep. behalf all the time. You have this opportunity to support this symphony. As you say, just a couple of violins are out of tune or something. Then it's going to hold, the, throw the whole thing into slight discordance. And so trying to get in there early and make sure everything is as smooth as possible is really, really super important. I agree. Let's take the college years, for example. You're a young mm. man or woman. You go off to college. You're away from home for the first time. You're drinking and you're not sleeping a lot. How much do those years impact the hormonal balance? just because of the stress and often the lack of nutrition and, and the alcohol. Like, well, I mean, we don't want to make everyone like, oh, you can't do any of these things because that's part of going to a university or college or whatever. So, you know, it's the usual thing, you know, in moderation. Of course, everyone at that time wants to explore and, and, and party and that's fine. But if it's for all three years, that's the length generally of our degrees here, for example, it's like that could have some adverse effects. But also I think the sleep, because you are trying to pack in such a, so many things that actually, of course, exercise and nutrition, super important, but actually sleep, chief nourisher in life's great feast from Shakespeare. And that is so true because that is like the sort of the grounding, if you will, the clock for, and your hormones all run on their own internal clocks. So if now you mess up or you're in, in conflict with your internal clocks and what you're doing, you're expecting to be up till 3 a.m. studying or partying or something, then that can have a long-term effect. And actually, 
It's very, very bad for your health being a junior doctor. I can tell you that for free, which you do do for a couple of years. You know, you have to be on call and so you don't get much sleep. And I personally experienced that. It's really strange. If you're up all night, suddenly at 4am, I just wanted to eat carbohydrates. Just like, give me anything. I don't know. Don't care because it messes up your appetite hormones. And if you have this clash of your sleep patterns and what your hormones are trying to do for you, it's what's called circadian misalignment. And we know that that does have a long-term adverse effect and you're more likely to develop metabolic syndrome, which is a whole cluster of hypertension, type 2, well, insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, etc. Coming back to your original point, you know, we're not trying to get everyone to not have fun, but on the other hand, in moderation, because yes, it could have a long-term impact on your health. Which I think is really important to mention because I do see a lot of young, and I'm sure you do, a lot of young people already like out of whack, like their hormones mm. being inspiring. And it's too, too connected, like as you do so well in your book, with our lifestyle and our diet and how we move our body and how we sleep. These, these systems support the system. So, yeah. Yep. So having a positive, creating some sort of balance i think at any stage of life more not of oh you shouldn't party and you shouldn't stand yeah exactly but the balance yeah. it's the balance right like how do you exactly. find that balance yeah and, and you know as a youngster yes i probably do have a little bit more resilience in the system but it's just not just going over the top and not continuing that you know when you have left college and you're in a job that you can't the body will just say no at some point we can just mention maybe just before we started recording, we're talking about the increase I'm seeing, and probably you are as well, in this situation of low energy availability in people who are exercising, men and women, by the way, who uh, are doing a lot of exercise. So you might say, well, that's great, but they're not fueling sufficiently to support that exercise. Or put it another way, what you eat gets prioritized to cover the movement, the exercise from evolution. You need to run away from the the tooth tiger, remember? So then if you used, siphoned off all that energy to cover that movement, then you won't have enough energy left to support healthy hormone networks. And so, for example, in women, this could manifest in terms of irregular cycles or even cycles stopping entirely. In men, their testosterone will go down low and they will re have reduced libido, so it happens to them. But remember, estrogen is crucial for bone health. So I see a lot of these people with bone stress injuries, soft tissue injuries, and yeah, just basically not healthy. So what I'm describing, in case you come across this term, is REDS, Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport. But if you're thinking, oh, well, that doesn't apply to me, I'm not an athlete, think again, because I'm seeing more and more people of any age, but I think maybe particularly in the, in the 20s, because, you know, people are moving on to work and, and you know, another set of, of pulls and pushes on their life that this often happens in, more likely to happen in amateur exercises. Because if you're an elite athlete and you're in a team, you'll have a whole team, nutritionists, a physiologist, a doctor, a physio, you know, all these people keeping an eye on things. But if you're sort of going solo, as it were, even if you're with a sort of an amateur training group, you won't have that level of support. And so you might misinterpret things like, oh, so-and-so is, or a, a professional athlete that you do look up to and admire, it's like, wow, they're training, doing all this training. But then they forget that actually they've also got a job, 
And actually, you know, they should also be eating to fuel all, all of this. So this is another challenge for our, our hormones. So please feed them. <laughs> Exercise, absolutely. But again, it all goes back to this, this balance concept of making sure you've got all of this in balance and in sync. So you, you can't exercise flat out every day. No, not even the pros do that. They always have a rest day, for example. So just, you know, giving the body the time to recoup and for the hormones to work their magics. Very, very important. And you mentioned in your book that it's, a rest day isn't riding your bicycle to work or going on a three mile mm. walk necessarily. It's actually taking a rest day. Is that right? Rest is rest. Yeah. I did, I did have uh, somebody, I can't even remember what sport they were. I think, I think maybe they were cyclists and it's like, oh no, I don't do any. No, I have a rest day. I just do a 10K run. It's like, hold on a minute. You know what I mean? Because it was a different activity. So yeah, rest day is a rest day. You know, maybe some gentle stretching. And of course, if you have to walk to the shops or something like this, that, you know, everyday activity, but not actively training. And the reason for that is you actually get fitter when you're resting. You don't get fitter when you're actually on your bike. It's actually when you're resting particularly when you're asleep, actually, because guess what? Our hormones spring into life then, like growth hormone, and they're going to drive those positive adaptations you're looking for. Why do we exercise? Yeah, it feels good, but also we're exercising because we want to be fitter, healthier, get faster, whatever it is. But you can only do that if you factor in sufficient recovery time for your hormones to work their magic. What is the downstream effect of not fueling your, your body properly? So let's just say your body has what it needs to run function, right? And then you work on, on top of that, but you're eating as if you're just, you know, let's just say a woman wants to be a certain weight. So she's eating 1200 mm -hmm. calories, but she's also exerting herself. Mm. We, it's like a bank account when you run up a big overdraft, right? So now you're going to an energy deficit and the more and more you pull out, the more and more you overdrawn you get. And so the, the, guess what? The hormones will respond. The hypothalamus will realize this pretty quick and say, uh, uh, something's a problem here. We need to go into energy saving mode, eco mode. You know, when your phone runs, goes low on power and you have to down, power down, power out, off, whatever. That's what the hypothalamus does quite correctly. Of course it will because it's got the survival mode. So what can it cut down for women? Having a menstrual cycle, actually, that takes a lot of energy for all the hormones and definitely you're not going to be in a good situation to get pregnant. So the cycles become irregular, maybe even stop. Similarly for a man, testosterone will go down, reduce libido, tired, etc. But also it will downregulate metabolic rate. Metabolic rate is the rate at which you burn through the, the energy. So it's like turning down the thermostats, you know, going, running very low power. And so this has an effect on the thyroid axis. So if you do it, if you do a blood test, everything, TSH, T4, T3 will all be low range. This is not an underactive thyroid. The thyroid gland in your neck is not packed in. No, the brain quite sensibly has said, just take a break. Just like it says to the ovaries, take a break. Just said to the thyroid, take a break. So this, so definitely this is not a situation to give thyroxin, by the way. Anyway, so everything will be powered down. All the hormones will be low level, but we just said how important hormones are for health bone health, number one, and and actually soft tissue muscle health. So lots of these people will come with a bone stress injury, a fracture maybe, or just a niggly injury. They just keep getting injured, can't, don't know why. All the things we discussed, you know, the cardiovascular health, I actually don't 
look at the cholesterol blood test because I know what it's going to show. It's not going to be a pretty sight. So anyway, certainly neurological function, very interesting study by a group study group run by Adam Ellen in, in Denmark. She found that women who were in this situation of low energy availability had reds and their periods had stopped. They had slower reaction time and peak power production. So the neurological connections are not working. And definitely these hormones are neurotransmitters. So our mood will be low mood, disturbed sleep, because basically the body is saying, please wake up, get some food. So you, you, so you have it, eat. So you have disturbed sleep. And so that puts cortisol up. But by the way, the cortisol is up already because it's a stressful situation. See, so now the whole thing gets into a vicious cycle. And you mentioned the gut micro, the gut and the microbiome. Let's bring that in there. The, the transit time, the motility of the gut also slows down because that takes energy. So these people will say, Oh, I feel really uncomfortable, constipated, bloated. It must be because I'm eating this or I'm eating too much, but actually the problem is they're not eating enough. So they restrict further and guess what? The gut problems get worse and worse. And definitely this will have a knock-on effect on the microbiome, the good microbes in our gut. They get into disarray as well. So listen, it's not a pretty picture. Let me, let me put it that way that from the health point of view, but also the most sad thing is that it will have a negative effect on performance because lots of these people think that if they do a lot of exercise, don't eat so much. Maybe, they, like you say, there'll be a certain weight. They will be able to do whatever they want better. But actually, they'll get slower. And actually, it has an adverse effect on body composition because cortisol's up. Cortisol drives fat storage, very energy dense. So it all, I'm afraid it all backfires. So don't do it. So be aware of that and just pick up the warning signs. Well, ideally, don't get into that situation. But, but realize that the body, you know, we need a lot of energy just lying in bed all day. Just to stay alive, just if you lie in bed all day, don't do anything. You actually need quite a lot of energy just to keep everything just ticking over. So anything you do above lying in bed, which I don't think many people would do all day, you know, well, you need to factor in that you need more, more energy intake. And it really messes up the brain. And I see that I'll have mm. a girl show up who is eating 800 calories a day and gaining weight. Wow. Because her thyroid yes. is downregulated. So yes, exactly. Everything yep. that comes in. Is it, and, and I will say to her, we're going to bump your nutrients up. And at first you're going to gain weight, but then your yes. body's going to realize it's getting proper nutrients and it's going to start letting go of that weight. Exactly. Right? So exactly. But it's a mental, mentally, I think it's really and triggering and hard to go, but wait, if I eat less, I should weigh less. And yeah, it is. It is counterintuitive. Yeah. It is counterintuitive that, you know, you, you've eaten less. Actually, you're not losing any weight anymore. And then at first you eat a little bit, but it's the long-term thing. You actually need to eat enough or eat more than you are in order to lose weight or regain your healthy weight, should I say, yeah. in the long term. But this is, but listen, again, we can't blame the body. It's doing what it should do because, you know, in the times of starvation, then the body will go into energy saving mode. That's what it does in starvation, which is effectively what this is. So it will lay down fat deposits because that's really energy dense, cortisol's high, et cetera. So, you know, the body is doing what it's meant to do. It's trying to keep you alive. And also just to really stress that point, that's also what I have to reassure people. It is scary what I'm saying, what we say. Yes, you need to actually eat. And there might be a little bit of weight gain, but quite a lot of that is of water in order to store carbohydrate as glycogen. So quite a lot of any and slight increase in weight will be water. But once the pilot light is set, once you've dialed up the thermostat, the metabolic rate gets going, then actually, again, the body, millions of years of evolution, it will equilibrate 
you will come to what the healthy weight is for you. For you, I stress, right? Right. right. Because that's the other thing. Oh, well, so-and-so weighs X amount and she's having periods. It's like, well, good for her. (laughs) But whatever it is for you as a woman, you will have your set point where you need to be to have your periods. And if you're, you personally are below that, then it won't, it just won't happen. You see? So that's the other thing, you know, try not to, it's, it's unfortunate. The invention of weighing scale is unfortunate, isn't it? You know, and after all, what is that? It's just the measurement of gravity. You know, if we transported you up to the moon and put you on the scales, then we'll be lower. Have you changed? No, of course you haven't. So, you know, it just remember, it's just a measurement of gravity. It's not the be all or, or end all what that number says. It's actually how you're feeling and how, how healthy are you is probably a more important thing to be considering. Yeah, and I do, it's interesting, I'm curious if you see this in women who are underfueling, even if they're not um, working out hard, you know, elite athlete of any type, training too hard, is that they don't always lose their period, but sometimes they'll just start that weight gain where the period is still happening, but suddenly the weight gain is they're eating less, they're walking, but they're still gaining. And I've seen mm. that as well. And I'm like, is that still LEA? I, th- I, think, I think it is because I was speaking with an amazing American, a Canadian colleague and prior, I do quote reference her in my, in my book. And she is saying that actually when the periods stop, that is like a big, big red flag. It's the tip of the iceberg though. So probably even if you're having your period, I mean, I know we said that's a very good signal and sign. Nevertheless, if you're in this sort of situation we're describing where you're, you're, you're going very close to the wind, you're just really on the brink of your period stopping, you might still have a period, but are you getting the full fluctuation, that beautiful choreography of the female hormones? Probably not. The body is trying its best, but it's going to save energy maybe by not ovulating, maybe like not producing quite as much progesterone as it sh- as you would expect in the luteal phase. You see, so there are subtleties, subclinical, ovulatory disturbances, as uh, Dr. Pryor calls them. And so I agree. I'm I'm seeing more of this now. That uh, yes, we should all. If someone says my periods have stopped and they're not progulant, I mean, I think, you know, that's, you don't have to be a medical doctor to know that, okay, that's something, something to be noted. But actually there are these subtleties. And especially if in this situation, if exactly as you described, the woman is saying, well, I'm still having periods. But when you speak, it's like, well, you're doing a lot of exercise and you're not eating much. And actually you are gaining a little bit of weight. You probably are on in that low energy availability. And this is where a blood test would be useful. Because the thyroid function, specifically the T3, is a very good surrogate indicator rather than doing a whole diet diary and energy expenditure, which is just like complicated and in any way not even very accurate. That would be a useful thing that I would do. And also to get some sort of confirmation about the level of progesterone. Dr. Pryor suggests doing basal body temperature, for example, and it should go up if you've got a decent level, if you've ovulated and got a decent level of progesterone. So I would be you know, when I say suspicious, I don't know if that's the right word. I would be mindful that that's what you're saying might be the case. And I would, I would look a little bit further at some details to present to the woman because then it makes sense. That's the other thing. I mean, you know, me personally, I want to see the evidence. If it was something to do with me, like I told you about the physio, I like pull the right. I, I want to know. So you want to know, right? Yeah. But if you can present and say, look, this is the evidence. T3 is low. You know, you're not ovulating that's the evidence, then 
that's actually really helpful for the for the individual so they can okay fine i understand now the rationale what you're saying why i need to make some changes and i wanted to touch on that because i know there will be women listening going oh i still have my period so i'm obviously eating enough and i'm like well, maybe not we got to look at that a little yeah just broader. check that out just check out that detail because yeah. that's the other thing lots of women you know oh then can't get pregnant Right. And so I see quite a lot of those sorts of women coming. So, well, I can't, I'm having periods, but I can't get pregnant. And then it's like, well, actually, I think we need to look in the detail of this. What's some other things that might be, that might be a reason for this that you can fix. So yeah. I've got a good track record of getting people pregnant, as it were. Oh, yeah. I'm really, I'm really excited for, you know, I have a lot of clients in the UK and I'm excited for them to know. Yeah. About sure. you and that you're there. And is there. I know it's a general question, but is there a way that we could consider eating and training for our menstrual cycles? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of it, lots of information out there. I mean, looking at the sort of hard science, theoretically, estrogen and progesterone do have different effects on substrate use, as it's called, the type of what fuel we use, whether it's carbohydrate or fat, for example. And we know that progesterone increases the metabolic rate. That's why you actually do need more food during the luteal phase if you've ovulated. So there are some hard facts we absolutely know for sure. And theoretically, estrogen, so the late follicular phase of the cycle, just before you ovulate when the estrogen's high, theoretically, that should make you super strong. And theoretically, in the luteal phase, if you've ovulated and you've got high progesterone, that might be when you're actually not feeling so good and you need to go a little bit easier, right? That's the theory, right? But that's assuming that we do know what women's hormones are doing and where she's in the cycle and if she's definitely ovulated, all these sort of things. So it does get me slightly irritated when there's lots of generic advice saying, you will feel, you will feel amazing, do this, or you will feel bad, do this. It's like, mm, you can tell I don't like being told what to do like that. <laughs> you know, so, so, you know, there is some truth in them for some women that will be true and that's brilliant. You know, like I say in my book, if that is correct for you, brilliant. But the person that knows best what's happening is you. So if actually, and I always quote this uh, professional female cyclist who was reading all this information and thought, oh, well, I should feel amazing. I should be whizzing up the hills on my bike in the late follicular. But actually she said that was the worst time of the cycle for her personally. She felt dreadful. She just couldn't get motivated, just felt really hard. But because she'd written, read all this other information, she was concerned there was something wrong with her. What was wrong with her? But then she realized that's just me. So my best advice is just get to know you. So make your own notes. I mean, I'm very old, as my children remind me. And, you know, in back of the day, it was pen and paper for us. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with pen and paper or an app or whatever you want, but just record your own, how you feel during the cycle. And then you can make a mental note and notes and you get to know you, how you feel during the cycle and work out your own pattern, what's going on. So I'm a little bit cautious about generic advice in general, but there is theory behind it, which is fair enough, but just then nuance it and, and tailor it for you specifically. I'm 47. I definitely feel the changes happening going toward menopause, being in perimenopause. Is, is it that we run out of eggs or is that there is a misfiring? We don't run out of eggs. We've got loads. But what happens is, you know, your hormones have been working very hard and your ovaries have been working very hard they retire. 
So there you graduate menopause is my new term, right? It's a, it's a, you know, it's like, you know, this, this is a natural physiological process. Okay. You've had your run. Now the ovaries are just having a rest. Thanks and retiring. So it's not that you run out of eggs. It's actually that the, the ovaries just get a bit tired and just sort of say, shut up shop, you know, and say, we're not responding to the signals from the pituitary gland. However loud the pituitary gland shout, by the way, and you see this on the blood test. FSH goes very high, but the ovaries as like, no, not doing. But it's not an on-off switch. It's not, a, yes, that's it. It's not an on-off switch. You don't have regular cycles and everything fine. And then the next day you wake up, oh, I graduated to menopause. It's perimenopause. That is Vivaldi in the four seasons, I have to admit, because it's not, it's a sort of the, the ovaries a little bit like, well, shall I, shan't I? So some cycles you'll feel fine. Some cycles it's like, what the heck? And cycles t- typically tend to get shorter because you're not ovulating. They get shorter and then they get longer and then they eventually stop. So it is a, it is a challenging time, but just to stress, it's not a disease. It's not an illness. It's a graduation. It's a menopause. But of course, because your hormones are changing, guess what? You have to change what you're doing and, and the tools we've been talking about, the, the nutrition the exercise and the sleep. You can't, you can't do what you were doing when you're 21, <laughs> right? So you do have to switch things up and change them around again. But again, that's empowering. If you know that that's what you have to do, then you can get on and do it. And then for many women, you know, HRT is also an option, a possibility to make the most of your menopausal years because now with increasing life expectancy, we're probably going to le- live at least a third of our lives in menopause. So, you know, you want to make those good quality, right? <laughs> right. And you want to have good bone health, which, you know, looks like after we lose, is it lose estradiol too? Or estradiol, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is the, the one that keeps our cardiovascular and our muscle, yeah, yeah. muscle building and bone health. Yeah, it's, all the good stuff. Yeah, the, the good, good stuff. stuff. Why does that go away? Why do we? Well, <laughs> yeah, well, of course, you, one doesn't, but you can help bolster that with you know, the type of exercise and food, of course, but for many women, HRT, I think is definitely something to be considered. And there's very few women, fortunately, for whom it's contraindicated. You know, lots of people say, oh, oh, oh you know, Dr. Nikki, she's big, she's very pro HRT. It's like, it's, I'm not pro HRT. I'm just pro women making the most of their lives, actually. And again, it's one of those informed decisions. Get all the information, have a read of my book. I've got a lot about HRT, the pros and the cons and all the possibilities and the best type and all that sort of thing. So inform yourself, get the information and make that informed choice. And also, you know, one can always try it. There is a little thing about personalizing the dose. So again, don't be frustrated. It's not the elixir of youth, I'm afraid. And it will take several months, you know, to find the right you know, formulation dose for you personally. So, you know, a little bit of perseverance sometimes uh, just to bear that in mind and patience, but it's certainly something I think women should be, you know, informing themselves about this, uh, this graduation to menopause. Do you recommend getting genetic testing to make sure that you aren't genetically predisposed for hormonal cancers? It's generally on family history. Okay. I mean, uh, HRT is a no-no if you've got a personal history of breast cancer, estrogen positive, no. Family history, sometimes it will get, it will depend on the detail, what the age was of the, of your, of the female relative, et cetera, and all that sort of thing. But genetic, no, it's, it's more just to taking a careful clinical history. But thankfully, you know, f- apart from that, actually HRT for exactly the reasons you've said is good for your long-term health because of cardiovascular disease and bone health. So, 
you know, just, you know, being informed and not listening to scare stories that the media jumped on or misinformation. The old yeah yeah thousand uh, women study uh, the, yeah, yeah the, that one it really messed up women in HRT for a long time exactly and then that was because the story was grabbed because it's a it's a headline but actually when all said and done and the information it was looked at and the paper was published it's like actually they didn't say that mm. or more to the point it was the without going into too much detail you have to read the book anyway so but I think we put that one to rest now but nevertheless it's still you know, there and people have heard about it. And, and, you know, it is, yeah, it's a woman's worst fear, isn't it? Breast cancer is not, you know, but to put it in context, it's no higher risk taking HRT than taking the contraceptive. And also it's, if you do, if you do do exercise two and a half hours or more per week, it decreases the cases of breast cancer by seven per a thousand women of age 50 to 59. So if you do your maths, because breast, the taking HRT, there's a slight four cases, extra cases. So if you do your math, you're still better off doing all the lifestyle and taking the HRT. Whereas women who don't take HRT but don't address the lifestyle are overweight, smoking, drinking, blah, blah, etc. Whopping extra increase in 24 cases. And it doesn't even cancer. have to be all of that. You don't have to be overweight and drink and smoke. You could be <clears throat> overweight and drink. You could be you're like it could Yeah, be- yeah, exactly. A combination, a combination yeah. of those things. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, I think it's, you know, just to be clear on your, make sure you, you're clear on your facts, ladies. If a woman goes through menopause and she doesn't have hot flashes and she doesn't have, you know, she's not dry, let's just say, mm-hmm. and she's got a libido, are you still looking at the effects of poor bone health and cardiovascular health, you know, heart health just because of the drop off in estradiol? So are you still at risk? Yes, you are. But the, certainly in the UK, the main indication is for your quality of life right then and there, right? It shouldn't officially be for long-term health benefits. But, I mean, it's pretty clear. I mean, listen, if if you truly don't have any symptoms at all, it's like, wow, good for you. But I think most people, if you're also realistic, because women, you know, we just get on with life. And actually, if you sit down and think, well, you know, actually, I said I was fine, but actually... I have got that brain fog and actually my mood is a bit off. And if you really think about it, there probably is something that you've noticed or you've put an excuse to, should I say, you see? So HRT would definitely help in that context. And certainly, frankly, it is an investment for your long-term health. I think just make sure you're aware of all the facts so you make the, the choice that's right for you. But anyway, on a personal load, I think they're going to have to be prizing it out of my hands because that's the other thing that's changed. It used to be, oh, you just take five years and then you stop. But actually, (laughs) the British Menopause Society here in the UK says there should not be an arbitrary limit on it. And if you're fine on it and everything's going well, then you can obviously be sensible and you can continue on and everything like that. So yeah, mine's going to be... (laughs) 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 It's like, no, don't. Well, also, so is there, is there women shouldn't start at their five years or 10 years after menopause? Is that a poor time to start? And if you do start, should it be right around menopause, before menopause? Yeah, it should. Ideally, again, that's changed as well. You know, before it used to be, you've got to prove that you're menopausal and you haven't had any periods for 12 months and you're feeling absolutely, insert a word there, I won't, (laughs) right? Okay, but now it's like, that's stupid, isn't it? And we don't want to make the mistake that was made in that original study, where actually the, on average, the women were 10 years after menopause when already the estrogen was very low and their risk was high anyway. 
So now it is, you can actually start it kind of when you want, even if you haven't actually officially reached menopause and your periods have stopped. In the perimenopause, as things are getting a little bit haywire, then actually it's quite a good time because then you can bring in the HRT and sync it with what cycles you have got. So it's more of a smoother transition waiting rather than waiting until it's absolutely dropped down really low and then starting. So that's the tendency now. In terms of if, and I have had a woman who has, didn't realize this and is quite a long way after menopause, five years or even more. But then that's on the individual. If she's a really healthy woman that's really fit and everything otherwise, then, you know, again, with discussion, then that might be appropriate for her to start HRT. So again, it, it's, it's better not to be leaving it that long. You know, never say never is the, is the point, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I noticed the subtle shift in, I don't want to say mental, but capacity. Like I've noticed shifts in capacity over the last, like since turning 46 and now 47, I notice a different capacity for things. And I'm like, oh, this is subtle, but this is intense. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It is subtle because it happens gradually like that. But like you making that, that thing, it's like, actually now you realize it's like, if I sit down and think about it, there is, there is a change. The best way to put it would be sometimes I feel a little like, oh, what am I doing? And then other times I feel less capacity. And I'm like, this is subtle, but it is profound. It's a Sounds like you need to have a think about HRT. Hey. <laughs> no, but it's, it's always the lifestyle first, just to make that clear. Yeah. It's a, like a good time to re revise, refresh what you're doing. So that's always number one. But if like you, you've already done that and you're still like, okay, there's something here, then yeah, this is the time now. <laughs> doctor <laughs> yeah exactly exactly i would imagine i would i would it would be interesting to see if if you, if you get far down the road of lack of mental clarity and anxiety kicking up all the time that can you pull it back and i'm getting what i'm hearing from you is you can begin to pull that balance back yes exactly i mean it's it's not exactly the same as getting red but you know, lots of people you don't realize that I see whose periods have stopped younger age group and they're low hormones. And so actually then the cognitive function isn't so great. And, you know, but then it's only when they come out of that and their periods start again, for example, it's like, okay, now I've got more clarity. Now I'm with it. I didn't realize it because it was that subtle thing. So listen, as I said, the HRT isn't the elixir of youth, but it certainly will make you feel more you. Yeah. <laughs> The point you just made is so important to me that underfueling steals from the brain, steals yeah. from passion, steals from ability to show up and perform. It's a thief. The idea this diet culture mm. is a thief. Yes, we don't want to be overweight because we're eating no, of course too not. much yeah. fuel, but we don't want to starve our body in the pursuit mm. of at this ideal body or whatever. What, whatever that is. Yeah, whatever exactly. that is. But it is strange. Nowadays, we have these two extremes. We do have the obesity epidemic, and then we do have, I'm seeing more and more, underfueling people, not elite athletes, by the way, who are looking for this ideal thing they've seen on social media or wherever it is. So we do have this polarization. And yeah, we kind of, hey, we need to come back to Hippocrates, that chap, don't we? We need to come into that balance and that surest path and not go off on <laughs> tangents here, there and everywhere. 
the black or white, right? The swinging of the pendulum of like you're yeah, exercising yeah. or you're overeating. How about we just find this really beautiful individual yeah. human body that we nourish and take care of? And well, and it is the most priceless gift that we have. It is the most expensive to fix when you mess it up. I'll tell you. True. That. That's also true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. More expensive than your car. But much more important. So, much you know, more important. Put in, put in that, that time and, and whatever. And anyway, so it's rewarding, isn't it? Yeah, it is rewarding. I ran my body into the ground the first 30 years mm-hmm. of my life and ended up with an autoimmune disorder. And mm-hmm. that was the awakening that I personally needed to take care yeah, of this yeah. incredible body that you have, woman. What are you mm-hmm. doing? I like to learn everything the hard way. But So, well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of your incredible wisdom. And I hope you'll come again sometime and chat with me because I loved it. I know. Well, listen, I think we need to do this again. Absolutely. Because we, I think we could just ca- carry on talking all night, couldn't we? There's so many things to explore. But yes, we better have a little our rest and recovery, hadn't we now? But thank you so much for inviting me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And yeah, thank you. Be delighted to come back on at some time in the future. Thank you. And I hope everybody checks out your book, Hormones, Health and Human Potential, A Guide to Understanding Your Hormones, Optimize Your Health and Performance, which is absolutely phenomenal. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned a lot. I hope it leaves you with a lot of questions that you will go out and do your own research on and speak to your doctor. And most importantly, look at your life. Sit back, look at your life. Where can you optimize? Where can you create better habits for yourself to take care of this incredible body that you've been gifted? And wherever you are on your health journey, know that I believe in you and your capacity to create balance. I hope you are well wherever you are in this beautiful world. Have a great day, night, or morning.